Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Perhaps like many of you, uh, my wife, uh, when my wife and I looked to purchase our first single-family home back in 2019, we had a certain set of items that we considered non-negotiables. We knew that for our, you know, at that particular time, we had two children, and in uh, Lord willing, having more, we knew that we would like to have at least three bedrooms right off the bat, two full bathrooms, central air, because I'm in the south and I'm not a monster, so you need central air, and uh, a yard, in our, it was a big deal for us, a yard that was at least one acre so that our kids could run around. We could budge on anything else. We, could, we, we don't mind fixing things up, but for our family, those are items that we were not willing to pass over. Now, for those of you that live in the Chapel Hill area and understand that having a list or just looking for a house in general within Chapel Hill that is available and affordable can prove to be a very difficult task. But nonetheless, we, char- uh, we continued to charge forward. We prayed and we trusted in the provision of God. And so we were online, like many of you like to do, and go to Realtor.com and Zillow. And we saw this one particular home in Chapel Hill, and uh, the pictures were terrible. They were awful pictures. And so whoever the real estate agent was or however they got the pictures on there, they might want to think about the future. And so looking at those pictures, we just kind of passed over. We're like, you know, this house needs a lot of work. We, we, you know, we don't know if we even want to tackle this. And so it got to the point where we're like, well, let's just go look at it. And so we went and looked at it in person and just looking at the yard and everything. We're like, man, this, this, we can make this work. And uh, that was probably one of the reasons why it was still available, just because of how bad the pictures were. And so uh, we made an offer, which was a lot less than what a lot of houses were selling for. And by God's grace, we got the home. And so many of you in here, Tim was a big help and several others as well, and just kind of helping us uh, rip the floors away. But every single room in that house needed to be repainted. How many of you do not like to paint? Go ahead and raise your hand. You just don't like it because you know the work that goes into it. Now, God has blessed our marriage in multiple different ways, but one way he's blessed me is he's basically given me the exact opposite of what I am in my wife. And one of those things being she is a perfectionistic person by nature. And so that balances out my let's just get it done uh, temperament and personality. And so when it comes to painting, it's not always good for us to paint together. And so I'm the type of person who just wants to go into a room, that wall looks good, I'm going to grab my roller out and I just want to soak it up and I want to just start painting. And she's like, no, there's a lot of steps that need to go into play before you just start painting a wall if you want it to be done right. You have to tape off the corners, you have to tape off the floors, and some of you are like, that's ridiculous, I would never do that. Well, if you want to paint well and you're not experienced, you have to do those things. You have to lay out the drop cloth. You have to wipe down the walls because there was like spider webs in that home. You have to wipe everything down because if you don't, there's going to get dust on the wall. So there's a lot of steps that need to take place before you paint because you can just slap paint on the wall. But in order for something to be done well and last for a long period of time, you have to take the necessary steps beforehand in order to have the long lasting results. Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 as we continue our study. And we will jump on that illustration here in just a few moments. But for those of you that are with us for the first time, 
Um, we've been mentioning this every single week, but James, that the author of this particular book, was not one of the 12 disciples. This is not that James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And so this book written by a skeptic-turned-Christian is a great benefit to a lot of us. See, James didn't become a follower of Christ until after Jesus Christ rose from the dead and appeared before James. James finally realized that who Jesus claimed to be during James' whole entire life as his half-brother uh, was actually true. He was the Messiah. And so James repented of his sins and gave his life to Christ, and so he became a follower of Christ. And God's grace in James's life was evident in a, in a, in a tremendous way. James uh, became one of the pillars, the prominent leaders of really what was the first New Testament church, and that was the Church of Jerusalem. And they ministered in a tremendous way. But the particular context of this letter James is writing to those that were once part of his church, but were no longer a part of it. See, what had happened was God and his sovereignty allowed persecution to creep into the area, mostly done by the Apostle Paul being a tremendous leader of that. And it forced those Christians within the Jerusalem church that were comfortable Christians to flee. And so they fled in that persecution, therefore planting churches in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, just as Jesus promised would occur. And so James still had a heart for the people, even though they were not part of his church, understood the challenges that the people would face. And they would fall into uh, hypocritical teachings by those philosophers that said that this is really what the gospel was, which was a contradiction to what the true gospel was. And then he also understood that there would be Christians out there that would, or people that claimed to be Christians that would pretend to be Christians, but really weren't. And so they were acting one way, but in reality, the conversion of their heart had never taken place. And so he writes this letter really for the purpose of, of, of describing this. If you claim to be a Christian, then act like it. And these are the qualities or the attributes in which a Christian should possess if they are true, genuine Christians. And so... As what a lot of the books do, they break this book down into multiple different sections. We are concluding this morning on the first section, which occurs in verses 2 through uh, 21 specifically, and that is dealing with trials. James says in verse 2 that you ought to count joy when you fall into trials. We understand that you will, at some point in time, fall into trial. You can't go through life and just divert trials. They're going to happen. So how do you deal with that when they do take Place. And so he breaks this down and really gives us nuggets of truth. We talked about the profit of trials, which is really to make us more like Christ. We discussed the perspective of trials, and that is God allowing things to come into our life to rip everything away in order to remind us or focus uh, our attention on what is truly important. And that is the riches that we have as Christians that are found in Christ. And then we discussed the, per the perspective of trials. And trials focus on what is truly important, but really they, they can either be a blessing or a curse based upon our response. But there's one thing that we have not discussed yet. What do we do when trials do come our way? Which they will. So sure, as we talked about, we are supposed to trust in God. We have, we're supposed to have faith in God. But how do we practically do so when we're caught up in the midst of a trial? I won't have you raise your hand, but... I could ask you, are you in a trial right now? Maybe you're caught in the middle of a hard circumstance right now. You just got a diagnosis from the doctor that is not something you want to hear. And maybe no one else knows about it yet other than maybe your spouse. 
or it could be a financial trial or, or, or a job trial, whatever the case may be. So the question then is, I'm a Christian. I want to have faith in God, but how do I practically do so when it seems as if the whole world has fallen apart? The whole bottom of my life has just given away. How do I, how do I follow through in faith? What James does in verses 19 through 21 is he answers this very question. So look down with me in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. We're just going to read three verses here this morning. He says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive the meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Going back to the paint illustration that I gave just a few moments ago. Many of us approach difficult circumstances and trials like we do when it comes to painting a house. We do whatever we can just to get by and get the job done and get through the trial. But in the process, we have a tendency to skip over the proper steps that are necessary for preparation. In other words, that are necessary for maintaining and keeping our faith. Our plan of survival may work for just a little while. I'm going to keep grinding. I'm going to keep pushing. But the long-term results are not lasting. In our final passage this morning within this particular section, what James does is he gives us the necessary tools to successfully overcome a trial. What James does is he really answers what we discussed last week and gives us practical steps of how we can take a trial and turn it into a blessing. So the title of the message this morning is The Properties Needed for Overcoming a Trial. James begins verse 19 with these two words, so then. So then is a continuation from the previous section that he gave earlier. As you remember, remember from last week, verses 12 through 18, James gives us the difference of a trial that can lead to a curse or a trial that can lead to a blessing. Bottom line, we can't choose the crosses that we bear but we can choose our response to those crosses. We can choose our response to those trials. In those verses, James tells us that if we continue in the faith in the midst of a trial, then we will be both blessed here on earth, which is a divine joy, and we'll also receive a future crown in heaven, specifically the crown of life, which is given to those that endure persecution and that keep the faith. What James says is that when we lose our faith in the goodness of God and we become angry and upset with God and we blame God for our sin, then the trial can turn into a curse by ultimately taking us down a path of sin. And James says here that it can ultimately take us down to a path of destruction. And we looked at last week that even though we may not die physically, we may have this appearance of death. In other words, it's why those people that are caught up in sin fall into depression. And they have no gumption and nor, no value in their minds of living on because they are so caught up in their own depression and their own lack of faith. But after reading those verses, really verses 2 through 18, the challenge is more or less incomplete. What James tells us as we looked at is really the profit of our trials is to conform us in the image of God, to remind us that everything we have is found in Christ. Our trials are not there to destroy us. But there is one thing that James does not discuss. How can we practically overcome trials? This is why James begins verse 19 with those two words, so then. Here's all the things about trials, so then this is what you do. He is letting us know that the word that he is about to say is an explanation of how we can maintain our faith in the midst of our trial. So then, it is with that in mind 
that James delivers for us really four qualities that are needed for successfully overcoming our trials. First off, what James tells us to do, open up your ears. That's the first thing he tells us to do is open your ears. James says in verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. The very first thing that James tells the Christians to do is stop and listen. This phrase, swift to hear, calls for this eagerness to hear and to obey God's message. In a world full of noise, it is of the utmost importance that we actually stop and listen to what God has to say. All throughout Scripture, what God does is He makes it absolutely clear that listening is the first step for a changed life. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Within this particular context, what Paul is doing is he's speaking on the necessity of spreading the gospel. He says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And he backs it up even further. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Paul makes it clear. Then unless a person hears and actually listens and understands the plan of salvation, they will never become a follower of Christ. Life begins, life change begins with open ears. But on the flip side of that, those that choose to close their ears to the promise of God's word, the truths of the gospel, the Bible says that they will be snatched away. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, when, the, uh, when Jesus Christ is giving the parable of the soils, he says this, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, which is the gospel, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches them away what was sown in their hearts. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. Who was Jesus referring to? Those that heard the gospel, but never listened to it. Never allowed the gospel to penetrate in their hearts. In essence, they never opened their ears. What does this show us? That open ears means more than just simply hearing something. It is allowing what we heard in church, through God's word, to actually penetrate our hearts to the point that it produces a life change. Within this context of James, what James is doing is he's, he is addressing believers. So the glorious truths of the gospel had already penetrated their hearts. They already were saved. So we wasn't saying accept the gospel. They already listened to their need for a savior. But just because they listened to their need for the gospel did not mean that they were in this automatic state of listening to God all the time. I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. How often do we as Christians come to church? We hear a message and then forget about the subject before lunch. It's like coming to church, and I, and I read this illustration, and I praise the Lord that I don't believe this way with, with the church family here, but you've been on a plane before, and what's one of the first things they do on that plane? The stewardess gets on, and they explain all the safety precautions, and I guarantee you not one person in here could recite that, even if you've flown a thousand times, because why? Nobody listens to what they're saying. They're standing up there, and they're going through, and we're looking at our phones, and we're looking at the magazine, but they get paid literally to talk when people don't listen. And sometimes pastors feel that way, right? They get paid to talk, and people are just thinking about everything else. And it's not that you listen to what the pastor says. It's what is God's word teaching me? And I'm guilty of this as well. How often do we not open our ears to what God actually has to say? He's been pricking your heart, but we don't want to listen. We want to do our own thing. We want to go our own way. And I'm sure that some of you may be like me where 
we're tempted to go into our time of scripture reading and we say, God, show me something good today. And we're reading through and we're looking for this nugget of this tweetable truth that we can share with somebody. God spoke to me and we give this little phrase. And so we're looking for it, but we fail to actually listen to the entire context of what God is trying to communicate to us in this word. Because we're looking for that one little phrase to blog about. We can all be guilty of not opening our ears, but perhaps one of the most beautiful examples from a practical standpoint of this open ear can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to turn to a few different passages here this morning, so hold your finger here and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, what we see here is really this front row seat to the brave accomplishments of David's mighty men. And you've probably heard that reference before. The mighty men of David were approximately a group of 30 men that were David's toughest military warriors. They served this important role of protecting the king and fighting for their nation. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, what we see is really this memorial of these particular men. But in verses 13 through 17, what we're given is an example of what just three men out of those 30 did for the king. That gives us this beautiful description of what an open ear actually looks like. Look down to verse 13. It says, Then three of the thirty chief men that went down at the harvest time came to David at the cave of Adullam, and the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephim. And David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines were then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. See, what happened was in this particular passage is that David was in the midst of fighting. He was in the midst of war. Bethlehem was his hometown. They weren't in Bethlehem. As you just read, the Philistines, which were the enemy, encamped Bethlehem. They had control of Bethlehem. But David was homesick. He didn't command anyone to do this. It was like we speak out loud to kind of you know, get our thoughts out in the air. And so he, in his longing, expressed, I just wish I had some water from my hometown well. Well, three of those mighty men were listening to their king. The king didn't ask them to do that. But in their listening ear, they risked their life. They snuck into that camp that was controlled by the enemy. They drew water from that well, and they brought it to the king. That's listening with an open ear. It is being so in tune, so loyal to your leader that you are willing to risk your life to serve them. They weren't told specifically. They were just listening. They were approaching the king with an open ear. And we see the rest of the story. David felt bad, of course, and he didn't even drink the water because he knew in the sensitivity of his mighty men that they listened to him and they risked their life. And David felt bad about it. But with God, God will never tell us to do something that would harm us. But how often do we have that type of listening ear with God? God is speaking. But yet we're not willing to sacrifice just a little time in order to give to him so that we can please our master and our creator. That's what these mighty men did. What does this show us? These men were not looking for handouts or accolades from David. They were simply devoted to their king, and in their devotion, they had this constant open ear. They were listening so intently that when David spoke something out loud that was not directed towards anyone, they jumped, risking their life in order to fulfill the need of David. Going back to James, 
If you and I are going to have any success in faithfully overcoming a trial that comes our way, we have to start by listening to God speaking. We have to stop overlooking parts of the Bible and searching for what we want in order to accomplish what we desire. Sometimes God keeps us in a trial. I want to repeat this here. Sometimes God keeps us in a trial in order to focus us and force us to listen. We listen to everything else when we go through a trial rather than the one that is actually trying to get our attention. Many of you know my wife works basically every Friday at the hospital. And so I get to hang out with the kids all day on Fridays. And so I work in the mornings usually, but the kids are up in the morning. They're up later on in the morning. And so our two kids have uh, little cars that we bought like on Amazon Marketplace. And they're little battery-powered cars, and our kids love it. Emerson has this huge, like, pink Cadillac-looking car. I mean, she looks like she's just living life on that high-roller car, a little tiny Emerson. Now, Emerson is not quite heavy enough to really weigh down that car, and so she gets stuck often. We have rocks in our driveway. We don't have a paved driveway, and our driveway slopes a little bit. And so if her car is at the bottom of that driveway where those rocks are and her having those plastic tires, if she was to be at any angle whatsoever, she's going to hit the gas and she's going to spin and not go anywhere. She's going to be stuck. Well, I know how to figure out how to help her, and I'm not going to try to fix it every single time because I want her to learn. But the other day it occurred to me that Emerson, in being stuck, continued to hit that gas. She continued to try to force herself out. And I called her name. I said, Emerson, Emerson. She couldn't hear me because she was too busy trying to hit the gas, and the noise of those tires spinning over those rocks was drowning out the voice of the one that was trying to help her. And then she got mad. And she's like, come on! Literally, she was banging on it. That was another issue we had to take care of. And she's banging on her car. And I'm like, Emerson, Emerson. So now she's got two things. She's mad, she continues to hit the gas, and she's yelling. She's never going to hear me. But what that showed me is how often in my life do I allow trials to overwhelm me and consume me that I continue to try to hit the gas in that trial, and then I get mad, and God's up there saying, Brandon, Brandon. But I can't hear him because I'm too busy listening to myself to try to overcome that trial. What if we just stop? And listen to what God is saying. That's why James says, first off, if you're going to overcome a trial in faith, you got to open up your ears. you got to open up your ears. The next thing he says here is after you open up your ears, number two, close your mouth. <laughs> close your mouth. He says in verse 19, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. In other words, James says that before you jump on what you just heard, make sure you fully understand. Man, this would be good for marriage. Make sure you fully understand what you just heard. The command here demands silence until we have understood and applied the message, and it calls for this restraint in order to prevent us from producing hasty and ill-timed reactions. Within this context of the early church, it was common for the services to be informal. Oftentimes, the listeners would debate with their speaker about the subject that was being presented, and as a result, sometimes, oftentimes, unfortunately, fightings and arguments would break out within the church. And this unfortunate set of circumstances was common for James. James understood firsthand the danger of listening and then responding out of reaction. So James says, don't just listen, control your reactions. Don't just spout off immediately what you just heard. Shut your mouth for just a moment. 
That's James really kind of getting it to you. The Bible has a lot to say about keeping your mouth shut. In fact, Proverbs says in two different instances that those who keep their mouth shut, discerning the words that actually do come out of their mouth, are considered wise. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Basically, the author says, The more words you say, the greater opportunity for sin to occur, so better to keep your mouth shut. Bad for people like me, good for people like my wife. <laughs> the little more quiet ones. Proverbs chapter 17, verses 27 to 28 states, He who has knowledge to spare his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit, even a fool, even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace, when he shuts his lips and he's considered perceptive. The author says that even a fool is wise when he stops and thinks before he speaks. Abraham Lincoln took this phrase and he adapted this concept and made this one of his famous quotes. He says, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. The point that James is making here is not just mere this action of just remaining quiet. What James is doing is he's touching on the attitude of each person. See, sometimes when we are caught in the midst of a trial, we are too busy trying to prove our point with God that we fail to see what God is trying to teach us. James, chapter, or James says in verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. James is highlighting, as we talked about last week, this need to remain quiet. Since when does arguing with God ever get us anywhere? Try to argue with God in order to prove our point. Since when does God say, okay, okay, you're right. Here it is. Your way is better than mine, clearly. You know, the lawyer, if you think about the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, when uh, Jesus gives the introduction to the parable of the good Samaritan there, while Jesus is teaching, the Bible says that a lawyer stood up and actually attempts to test Jesus by asking Jesus what he must do to eternal life. And so Jesus did what he typically does, and he turned it back on the lawyer. And he says to the lawyer, well, what do you say the Bible says? And the lawyer says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then things get interesting. After the lawyer quotes scripture, Jesus says that you've just acknowledged you're the right thing. And, 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 then, and then he continues to put on to the responsibility of the lawyer. Jesus responds, you have understood or you've answered rightly, do this and you will live. The words that then come out of the lawyer's mouth next reveal the lawyer's true intent behind the questioning. In Luke chapter 10, verse 29, he says, but he wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? We often respond out of reaction to God because we are too busy trying to justify ourselves as to why we don't deserve this trial that we are facing. We listen, but we don't close our mouth. We react on what we perceive to be the truth. James tells us that if we're going to overcome our trial, we must first proceed with an open ear. It requires listening truly listening, and it requires keeping our mouth shut. But then the third thing he says here, when we listen, we need to keep our mouth shut. We need to open up our ears, keep our mouth shut. And then thirdly, we need to possess a teachable spirit, a teachable spirit. James says, or as in verse 19, he says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. This type of wrath here is not referring to this boiling rage or this fury that we oftentimes think about wrath, but more like a settled indignation. 
It's a warning against hostile and bitter feelings. Again, this is addressing this overall response that we have to trials. We don't listen to what God is teaching us and saying to us through those trials. We are proceeding when we are proceeding with closed ears. We have closed ears. We make things worse by assuming that God hates us. We then become angry and bitter towards God, which is the type of wrath that James is speaking to here. Within this context, this deep internal resentment and rejection to God's word does no good for us. Our eternal inclination is not to hear the truth of God's word. We don't want to hear it. It goes against our fleshly desire to live for ourselves. And so we don't possess this teachable spirit. We think that our ways are better. Warren Wearsby states in his commentary, James warns us against getting angry at God's word because it reveals to us our sins to us, like the man who broke the mirror because he disliked the image in it. People rebel against God's word because it tells the truth about them and their sinfulness. If you were to think about it this way, we can go through a trial, we have an open ear, and so now, and we have a closed mouth, so now we're trying to perceive what God is teaching us. But we don't like what God is teaching us because it goes against what our flesh wants to do. And so we become mad at God. That's why when people read the scriptures or let me put it this way, hit a little bit more home to all of us here. That's why you may meet someone that is going through a trial and they know they're supposed to be in church, but they don't go to church. They don't read God's word because really in their own heart, they don't want to hear what God has to say because they're mad at God. And getting mad at God is, is the worst thing that we can do when we're in a trial. Because God is trying to teach us something. He's trying to conform us in the image of His Son, like we talked about in the beginning part of James chapter 1. If you've ever, read, if you've ever uh, seen the movie Beauty and the Beast, how many of you have seen that movie before? You remember the part where Belle is doing something she's not supposed to do? Is she kind of trips and kind of staggers and finds her way into Beast's room, his chamber, right? Which would be awesome to live in a house like that, but he didn't do a good job keeping it up. And so he goes into his chamber, and everything is ripped up and marred up because the beast is mad. As you walk over, and Belle is trying to figure out a way, she notices in the corner of her eye there this picture. Remember the picture, right? She, all she sees is his eyes. But it was ripped because the beast saw in that picture what he once was or what he was supposed to look like. And so out of his anger, he ripped it up because it reminded him of what now he was. He was angry. That picture didn't do anything. It just showed him and revealed to him who he truly was or who he once was without the curse placed upon him. We get mad at Scripture because the Scriptures reveal to us who we are supposed to be in Christ. But our flesh rebels against that. And we get mad at that. And we set our Bible aside, we stop going to church, and we stop talking about God. That is not possessing a teachable spirit, which is exactly why James says it is so important to possess a teachable spirit. Why is it so important? Look at verse 20. It says, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. All anger does is get in the way of what God is trying to communicate to us through the trial. Pitching a fit and getting angry with God is not the type of uh, teachable spirit that God has or that God wants and will use. Frankly, getting mad and pitching a fit with God never works. For those of you that are parents, I dare say that there's never been a time where you told your kids no and they started pitching a fit and you sat back and you were like, you know what, that is an excellent display of emotion. Your point is correct. I'm going to go ahead and give that to you. It doesn't work with our kids. Why would it work with us and God? 
not possessing a teachable spear. So what we have seen so far and these progressive steps to successfully overcome a trial, all these steps go hand in hand. When we encounter a trial, be ready to listen to what God has to teach you. Don't react to what you hear by quickly opening up your mouth. Sit back and observe what God is teaching you. As God teaches you, be ready to learn and grow and don't get mad at the truths of God's word. So after we take these three qualities, closed mouth or uh, open ears, closed mouth, teachable spirit, God will begin to reveal in our hearts what he's trying to teach us. And so then what do we do with all of this? Which leads us to our final point. We receive the truth. Receive the truth. James begins verse 21 with the word therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, you can circle it in your scriptures there. You must ask, what is it there for? Why is that word therefore? It's obviously connecting something. James is connecting the truths of what we just learned in verses 19 through 20 with the application of what he's expressing here really launches off our next section, but what he's expressing here in verse 21. The ultimate goal of what James wants the reader to do is to receive the truth. This is what James is referring to when he makes the statement, receive the truth with meekness, the implanted word. Now, the interesting thing here that James chooses to use is this word implanted. James uses the implanted word to describe God's word that was planted in our hearts at the moment of of salvation. James is describing the gospel as a seed that is planted. So in this context, the Christians already possess salvation, but they are not necessarily producing the fruits that they could produce through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in order to make his point, what James does is he saw the human heart as a garden. He saw the human heart, understanding that if it was left to itself, the soils of our hearts would only produce weeds. It would produce weeds. So here in verse 21, James urges the Christians to pull out the weeds and to prepare the soil for the implanted word of God. So there's two ways that he does that or says it here. First off, letter A, he says, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. That word filthiness there can be translated vile raiment. The root word for filthiness was used by the Greeks, this is interesting, to describe or refer to earwax. Now here's the visual image that James is using here. In essence, James says, clean out your ears so that you can hear the truths of God's word. Now the phrase overflow of wickedness gives us this picture of a garden that is completely overrun and overgrown by weeds. The seeds are there. The gospel is in our hearts. We don't lose that. But when the weeds overgrow the garden, it chokes out the fruit of those seeds. It takes away the nutrients and it takes away the growth of those seeds. So when putting these two words together, what James is doing is he's commanding us to shed away the sin and the wickedness that prevent our spiritual growth. This is like a gardener preparing the soil so the seed can grow. Sin stifles growth and it prevents us from clearly hearing the word of God. So then the question then is, How do we prepare the soil of our hearts to receive the truths of God's word? Well, it all begins with confession. Confession, if we recognize sin for what it is, a violation of the character of God, then we bring it before God in confession. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, this isn't talking about salvation repentance again. We still sin after salvation. So there's still stuff that we need to get taken care of. But that doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. It just means that in our continual growth to become more like Christ, there are things that we need to take care of. We need to do this constant weeding of this garden of our hearts. 
As we continue to grow in our maturity, the weight of our sin will become heavier and heavier. Therefore, our desire to sin will diminish. But if we are going to grow in Christ, we must begin with confession. We must agree with God in regard to our sin, and it has no place in our heart and life of a Christian. I saw a very graphic visual illustration of this, and I shared this with Tim and Alina yesterday. Uh, and I know I use the example of chickens a lot, but chickens have taught me a lot about Christianity. Okay, so here's another example. The other day, Eileen uh, was at work, and, and as she was at work, I heard this really, as I told you last week, we have four new chickens. I heard this really horrible sound. This little chicken, and it was screaming, like, ah, like, kind of like that. And so I looked out in our chicken coop, and what I saw were three of the older chickens attacking one baby chicken. Just, just, I mean, every once in a while, they'll peck them, like a pecking order. But this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. They grabbed that chicken, they jumped on top of it, and they were pecking the head like that, just pecking at it. So I walked in there, and... Um, <laughs> I punched the one chicken, and uh, it was fine. It was fine. I was trying to get it off, all right? So I walked away, and I just kind of hit it. I walked away, and I was like, all right, what's going on here? So I looked, and I noticed that there was two spots of blood on top of the little baby chicken's head. I had heard before that if a chicken sees or smells blood, they will attack it. So I took that chicken out, and it kind of was outside all day, and uh, yesterday... I put it back in there last the, the, the night, and then yesterday, the same thing happened again. Three of those same chickens on the same little baby chicken, all out attack. Just all out attack on it. And I looked it up, and I was like, man, what is going on? We have some sadistic, cannibalistic chickens. <laughs> and looking it up, it's actually natural, and here's why it's natural. When a flock of chickens senses a weaker chicken, senses that it's sick or sees blood and senses that it's weak, they will all attack that weaker chicken, not because they're being mean, but because God has given them this natural ability to detect weakness in order to destroy it so it doesn't affect the rest of the flock. Those chickens were actually killing that one chicken, as horrible as it sounds, in order to protect the spread of what they thought was disease to the rest of the flock. I give that graphic illustration for this reason. That's how we should approach sin in our life. We attack that sin head on through the power of the Holy Spirit, pecking the mess out of it to get it out of our life so it doesn't take over and affect other areas of our life. What James says here is as you continue to grow, you'll become more sensitive to that sin. And you'll become more sensitive to the calling and the working of God. And so we approach and we lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and let it be after we do so, we humbly receive the truths of God's word. James says in verse 21, to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Remember, this is addressed to Christians, so this is not talking about salvation. How can we receive something that is already planted in? This is nurturing. Think about gardening. It's nurturing the truths of God's Word. It's watering the, the seeding. It's water. It's tending to the seed. It's taking care of the seed. And perhaps the best example of this whole concept comes through our final passage reference this morning, and that is in Psalm chapter 51. Flip over with me to Psalm chapter 51. In this particular psalm, David has already been approached and confronted by his sin with Bathsheba, his affair with Bathsheba. David, again, already a man after God's own heart, messed up pretty bad. We all mess up. 
took David a little while to figure out exactly how bad it was. But in Psalm chapter 51, we see it happening with David. And so what we see is David pleading before God in this repentive plea. But we see several different things he does. In verses 1 through 2, he first off pleads for mercy. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. After he pleads for mercy, he then moves into this acknowledgement of his sin. He says in verse 3, For I have acknowledged my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. He's not making any excuse for his sin. He knows what he's done. And I've done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. And behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part of you make me know wisdom. And then after he does that, what he does in verses 7 through 9 is he pleads for cleansing. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. The bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then finally what he does is he asks God for divine renewal. Verse 10, he says, create in me, O God, a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore with me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. As we close this morning, may we be refreshed of this grace that we have with God in our everyday life. May we adapt this pattern that David gives here. We plead for mercy, we confess it to God, and then we ask God for his renewal in our lives as christians we have this hope of salvation implanted in our hearts but sometimes we just need to train our ear to listen to what god has to say as i close this morning i want to close with one final story there's a story of a famous naturalist that was walking down the busy downtown streets in new york city with his friend as he was walking the naturalist said to his friend do you hear those crickets his friend looked at him and said are you kidding me All I hear are cars beeping, people screaming and yelling and talking and people shouting. I don't hear any crickets. And the naturalist looks back at the man and he says, well, you know what? That's because you're not trained to hear that over the noise. Let me me show you an illustration. So as they continued to walk, the naturalist grabbed the quarter out of his pocket and he dropped it on the ground, making that ding, ding noise. And as he did so, he saw three or four people stop what they were doing and look down at that quarter because they were trained to hear that money fall in the midst of all that chaos, they heard it. In our Christian life, we need to get to the point as we grow in our spiritual life in the midst of our trial that we train ourselves to listen and hear God's voice. But that's not going to happen until we first approach Him with an open ear, with a closed mouth, and with a teachable spirit. We lay aside all that sin in our life, we lay aside all those sinful habits, and we humbly receive the truths of God's Word. That's where spiritual growth happens.